Hello and welcome to episode nine of Art Lives, a series of interviews with artists of all media. My name is Elizabeth Illamater, and today's interview features Jennifer Upoff Gray. Jennifer Upoff Gray is the artistic director of Forward Theater, a not for profit professional theater company based in Madison, Wisconsin. In this episode, Jennifer takes us from her light bulb moment to Broadway. We learn how Jennifer collaborated with other artists to form a new thriving arts organization that just had its 10th anniversary. We also learn how Jennifer figured out how to maintain her family legacy of community engagement and social justice and combine that with her love of the arts. She tells us what her day-to-day life is like as an artistic director and also shares her belief that personal suffering is not required for creative expression. We had a wonderful conversation and I really hope you enjoy this. Here is Jennifer Upoff Gray. seemed to me from the moment I met you you knew what you wanted to do and then you went and you did it and it seemed that you always you always knew is that true well yes and no because I actually had a really sort of 180 career plan shift in college because I was always um I was I was always driven I was you know focused on academics and extracurriculars and doing all of those but if you looked at my high school yearbook it says that my plan was to be Wisconsin's first female senator oh. which I'm very grateful Tammy Baldwin wears that crown but yes. but I planned to go to law school and then I, I you know I was a history major That's undergrad right. I was going to go to law school I was going to do civil rights law and then I was going to go into politics that was my plan but I always loved theater. I acted in tons of shows, right. went to tons of shows, loved it, but literally it never even occurred to me being an actor professionally. That I, I never had that drive. I never had that sense of being good enough at that to want to pursue it. Um, so it was always just a thing that I did that gave me joy that I didn't intend to relate to my professional life. But when I was at Harvard, you know, so I'm a history major, yeah. so I'm taking tons of history classes. I'm taking all the core curriculum requirement classes. Yep. And then every leftover class that I had, every slot, I would take a theater class. Sure. They don't have a big theater program there. Right. Um, there's not a theater major or anything like that. But they did have quite a few classes, you know, in the English department. There was a visual arts department. There were, you know, there were opportunities. And I would take these theater classes. And um, I remember uh, my sophomore year... Um, I took a class where you did some acting and some writing and some directing. Cool. And it was the first time I'd really done any directing. That experience combined with, so at Harvard, there was a professional company in residence, the American Repertory Theater. It right. was run by Robert Brewstein at the time. Diane Paulus runs it now. And they did a five-show season in the Loeb Drama Center there on campus with, you know, Cherry Jones was one of the company members while I was an undergrad. I got to see her in like 15 shows. It's the greatest thing ever. Um, Alvin Epstein, all these amazing, amazing actors. And 
see and it was a that was a director's theater like they brought in these really more avant-garde more experimental directors so that you really saw their handprints all over the piece which is okay. very different from the kind of theater i grew up going to see here right. in madison right um, which was much more about the actors or the writers right so then it was just sort of this education and oh directing is like this really creative job and that combined with this class i was like oh i want to do some more of this and i um over the course of a year, I started directing a bunch of shows um, as extracurriculars, and that led me to this realization that this is what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and I still remember junior year of college suddenly realizing, hold on, I don't actually have to graduate with a history major. I've taken so many classes in theater that I could probably construct an independent study major in theater. And so I did that. I went and got an advisor. And my, you know, Harvard doesn't give what they call technical degrees. Okay, right, yes. Um, so I thought, okay, well, like if you were pre-med, you wouldn't major in pre-med at Harvard. Nope. You'd major in biology yep. or something like that. I was like, okay, well, what are the building blocks of theater? So my degree from Harvard actually is a degree in dramatic literature and stage history. That's right. I've seen that. Um, and so... So yeah, I mean, when you knew me in high school, like I was very driven. I did have this really clear sense of where I wanted to go. But in terms of where I wound up, it was this big uh, path shift when I realized that there was a role for me in this art form that I loved that really suited my, my strengths and my interests. Mm -hmm. So. Did it, do you feel, um, did you have any conflict about that? Or did it just feel like, oh, okay, this is, this is me. I I didn't feel, and I, again, you know, lots and lots of smaller decisions that I make in my life, I felt more stress about. But with that one, um, it just felt so right. It felt so hand in glove. Yeah. Because I've always had this part of me that's creative. Right. But I've also always been, I'm, I, you know, I'm very organized. I, you know, <laughs> I like to, you know, if you put me in a group of people, I will help us sort out a plan for action and help us get there. It's not sort of pay attention to me, but it's like, can I help us all move in a direction rather than sit here and talk about it too much? You know, <laughs> that's always been my personality. And um, that's not a good personality for an actor. <laughs> that's not true. You know, true. That's not necessarily a good fit. But um, all of those things that I felt I was good at mm -hmm. that would have been useful in the original career path but that original career path might not have been using the creative part of me yeah when i sort of realized that there was this job that was out there that i could use all those parts of me wow. it felt really like the right thing kind of right away cool yeah did you have any was this all then self-directed once you made that decision, or did you have any um, immediate mentors that you... Um, I didn't have any mentors, really, that were directors. Mm -hmm. um, because, again, it's, it's funny, because if I thought I wanted to be a director in high school, yeah, I wouldn't have gone to Harvard. I probably would have applied mm -hmm. to Yale or Northwestern right. or a school or NYU or a school like that. But interestingly, I don't think I would be as good a director because those programs, from everything that I know about them, it's much more structured. You go through this program, and then here you can have a show to direct in your senior year, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Harvard, all, 
there were like 40, 45 shows per semester Amazing. that were done self-produced by students all over campus. Amazing. So I could direct a couple of shows every semester and really learn that way. So I learned a lot that way, yeah. but I didn't learn a lot from a, a teacher saying, this is how you direct yeah. while I was a student. Um, where I did get mentors was after I got out of college. Um, when I was, the summer between my junior and senior years, I got an internship in New York City working for, at the time, a small off-Broadway commercial producer, um, Richard Frankel Productions. <laughs> um, they had an internship position, and it was a very small staff. They had like five people or <laughs> something like that. And then I was the summer intern. And it was a great crash course on how the commercial theater business worked, but yeah. also how New York theater worked. And what was great about that was that I built some I got to see a lot of shows. Sure. I got to read a lot of scripts, understand how the business worked, and I made some connections. And when I, my senior year, directed my thesis production on the Loeb Drama Center stage yes. where the ART performed, Richard sent a couple of his staff members up to see the show. Cool. Which was great. So then they were like able to say, oh, this person actually has some talent and has a potential career. Mm -hmm. So that then when I moved to New York after graduation, they put me forth as a possible assistant director for some shows that they were producing. And I was able to, you know, I got a couple gigs on um, some off-Broadway shows as an assistant producer that led to some Broadway productions. And I, that's how I gained some mentors who I really was able to work with on multiple productions and really learn from. Right. It seems so easy. Sure. <laughs> and the thing is, there's no one path. I mean, that's the thing is, I'll talk to a lot of young directors and yeah. they'll say, great, so how do I have a career? And I'm like, yes. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, no two professional directors had the same path right. to getting work. And so that's hard. Did it feel easy at the time? It No, it didn't feel easy. Um, and there were times when it was very stressful or I was like, oh, God, what comes next? What do I do? Mm -hmm. You know, there were times when I considered going to graduate school. Um, you know, I actually went through the whole application and interview process uh, at one point and then decided not to go. Um, th yeah, there were times where it felt really hard. But luckily, I never went incredibly long stretches before yeah. the next opportunity came along. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that made all the difference. Yes. And I did a lot of temping in between. So I was, you know, able to support myself and not be, like, I wasn't like sitting in my apartment going, yeah. oh God, what am I going to do today? I was like, oh, I'm going to go to work and input sure. things in Excel spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations until the next gig comes along. Now that's something that's very interesting to me because um, the show Rent was just on TV. Yes. <laughs> and that show when that show uh first hit broadway i didn't know about it because i was living rent mm -hmm. except for the aids part i was in school for music and i had all of those conversations with people about mm -hmm. selling out mm -hmm. and you have to just live for your music and if you take a day job you're selling out and mm -hmm. you're not being true to yourself and i uh some of my friends took a long time before they um felt like they weren't letting their artistic selves down mm -hmm. if they did something else to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. So 
for you is that is that you was um was that the reality of living in new york why were you so practical um i've never really personally bought into the idea that you have to be suffering to be an artist <laughs> and i know that that is a very deeply felt um life view for some artists and this is not meant to dismiss that life view but i've never i've never seen that as um as true for me yeah. I, I think that um art can come from anyone it mm. doesn't have to come from suffering it can come from suffering it can come from joy it can come from complacency it can come from um uncertainty uh mm. art can come from anywhere mm -hmm. um i also believe and this is this is a philosophy we can talk about this later that's born out in how we run forward theater company yes you need money to create art yeah. you do it does not mean you have to sell out you have to find the right balance right. like what resources do you need to create the art that you want to create and you have to find the way to balance that yeah but if you don't have money to pay your rent and to buy food you're going to have a limited time frame in which you can create your art right and um so i don't think there's a, i don't think there needs to be some sort of purity test you know, the more starving you are, the better artist you are, or the more true artist that you are. Um, you know, but it is the quintessential New York, especially dilemma of, okay, great, I'm a theater artist. How am I going to live while I build a career? And am I going to wait tables? Am I going to temp? Am I going to be a childcare provider? You know, what are the, what are the, there's lots of, there's lots of options. Sure. And you have to find the thing that works best for you. For me, temping was a really great solution because um you know i went to harvard i'm smart enough you know i had good computer skills i could do all of that so mm -hmm. i was actually in high demand as an office temp nice um ironically it's funny I, I look back now i was working in the derivatives department at citibank oh, in wow. the mid 90s and when i think back on the stuff that they were doing there it's like oh god did i help tank the economy in, in unintentionally um but you know so i was in high demand because i was responsible and i was yeah. smart and i could get that work done and Constantly, they'd be like, can we offer you a full-time position, you know? And But what I loved about being a temp, and I was a long-term temp sometimes, mm -hmm. um, was that because I wasn't an employee of the company, yeah. I could leave on a moment's notice. I could say, you know what? I just got a gig. This happened once. I was like, I got called to assistant direct a Broadway show on like three days notice because the producers would always be, that'd be the last thing they would think about. <laughs> oh wait, we're about to start rehearsal. Director wants an assistant. Let's go get somebody. Um, if I had been an employee, I would have personally felt a lot of guilt yep. about quitting and leaving them in the lurch. Yep. But that was the deal. They got yeah. to have me without paying benefits <laughs> and I get to quit without feeling guilty. Right. And that's that's how you know that was what worked for me and then whenever my you know theater gig would end i would call up the temp agency and say great i'm available starting you know tomorrow or next week or whatever and they would place me um and i certainly did well on the routine of i'm gonna go have my nine to five job and i could take classes in the evening or i could direct things in basements in the evening or i could see lots of shows in the evening around weekends and sure and i so i still felt like i was um pursuing my artistic life in between gigs nice nice yeah i think that that is i think that that is really important um 
another important thing to say to my students and that I do find myself saying is you're not a failure if you are eating you're paying the bills. <laughs> you are succeeding if you are eating <laughs> yeah 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 a hundred percent yeah I was I, I watched that uh rent broadcast the other night and just for my husband and I I mean we were living in New York then I saw the original Broadway cast I think three times in the first couple of months oh wow that it was running you know once with tickets that um you know my in-laws had bought so we could all go see together and once you know my husband at the time was um in graduate school and a company that was courting him offered some tickets and we did the whole wait on the sidewalk you know overnight for tickets once um and that was really we weren't we weren't living in the east village we were living in brooklyn yep. you know we weren't you know we weren't upper east side but we weren't east village either um yeah. But the city we lived in and the concerns yeah. that it reflected about about AIDS, about poverty, um, about trying to find a place to make your art. That was the life we were living. And it was so, it felt so personal. And right. it's, it is pretty um, wonderful to watch it now and have it feel really dated. Yes. It's really, uh, but not, I mean, largely in terms of the AIDS crisis. Right. But also in terms of... Um, it was, it felt like such a new and, and shocking good thing to see these LGBTQ couples, um, on a Broadway stage. Oh my gosh. And now they can show it on Fox, you know, exactly. and it's, it, oh it's, my we've goodness. moved so far in such a relatively short period of time. That right. was, that was thrilling. Absolutely. That I can watch it with my, you know, 12 to, I watched it with my 12 year old and it was great. There wasn't an advisory, like I think there was for Be that. Be careful. Ellen. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's also another thing is that um, art can, theater can be a place where you can um, portray the way people live and you can express human experience as it is now. Yeah. And um, I wish that um, I knew how to tell people this. I knew how to tell young students, how do you tell, especially young people, theater, you need to go see theater. It's not this stuffy thing. What do you say? Um, Yeah, that's something we were really um, doing a lot of thinking and um, uh, working on at at Forward. Uh, And it's partly because I feel like Madison has a really rich arts community and a really rich theater ecosystem where we really fall down as a community is um, theater for teenagers. Yeah. There's fantastic theater experiences for young children, sort of through middle school age. There's a few classes and things for teenagers, but, but you know, high schools very rarely take their students to see theater. There right. are not a lot of opportunities other than your school show to participate in theater. Um, and that's the thing we're really working on. And it, you know, we're well positioned in a way because Forward's um, focus is on doing contemporary work, first of all. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't do productions of Chestnuts. You know, pretty much everything we do is between, you know, zero and, you know, eight or 10 years old at the oldest. Wow. Um, and so we really are doing plays that speak to where we are mm-hmm. right now in the world. That helps. Yeah. Um, and frequently, um, I've been drawn to plays that have um, 
sometimes a focus on teenage characters. We did a play last year called I and You, which That's was just right. two teenagers. Um, it was not a play specifically for teenagers. It was for adults, but also incredibly engaging for mm-hmm. teens. Um, or plays that have younger characters in them. Like we just did Fun Home. And so we've really tried to work to build relationships in the school districts to entice um, high schools to bring groups uh, to see our shows. We've done a couple of um, student matinees just for teens cool. of different shows. We had a play um, a couple of years ago called From Up Here that oh. dealt with um, uh, bullying. Uh, it was, you know, the script was focused sort of evenly on the kids and on the parents. Wow. But we did a student matinee and brought teens in. Um, same thing for INU. Actually, for um, this ties back to rent in a way. When we were running Fun Home, mm-hmm. we did a matinee that was underwritten, and we partnered with this group, G Safe. They coordinate right. all of the GSA clubs around um, mm-hmm. the state, high school and middle school. And we went to them and we said, "Look, we want to do a free performance for kids who are in their middle and high schools GSA clubs in like Dane County." Wow! And they helped us coordinate that. So we packed the playhouse. We had like three hundred and something teenagers from 18 different schools wow. who all came in. We did this private performance. We had this extended talk back afterwards. To see that show with that group of kids, yeah. I mean, every single person working on our show, whether it was the IATSE technician running the lighting board, mm-hmm. the stage crew, the actors, the musicians, and the I mean, all of us were just completely overwhelmed with yeah. how great that was, and it was, yeah, so we're we're trying to do more of that. I mean, we're doing plays. Contemporary writers are writing plays that I think are incredibly engaging. I have I have three 12 to 17-year-olds living right. in my house. They come to see the shows that we do and find them incredibly engaging. It's convincing their peers. Yes. Um, and if I knew, like, the silver bullet to make that happen, you know, I would just be going all over the country sharing that. But um, But I don't. But we're working on it. I think there's there's a thing with live entertainment with um, I teach I'm teaching college now and then any class that I teach um, a general education class I teach I require people to go to a live performance of some kind and it's often people's first live performance right. of something which is so surprising to me because of the way we grew up where mm-hmm. our school took us to so many things mm-hmm. and um, I don't, um, I don't know what the answer is, but Forward Theater seems to be doing a great job with that. And you, you also uh, partner with so many other organizations, which seems yeah. to be important. You're not trying to do just your own outreach. Right. right. Was that your idea? Um, I mean, sort of, yes, but, but also a, a, a group effort. Um, as you know, and as my, my talk about wanting to be, you know, a civil rights lawyer and politician <laughs> indicates, you know, I grew up in a super political family. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a family where there was this absolute expectation laid down that you would, in your life, be making efforts to make the world better than you found it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. True. But that was a clear expectation, you know, very politically engaged. Not, You know, my parents both worked for nonprofits their whole careers. Um, I had grandparents that ran for office on the socialist ticket, you right. know. Um, very, <coughs> excuse me, oh, it's winter in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so that was a big part of it. And honestly, it was one of the reasons why ultimately we left New York. I mean, there were a lot of family reasons. It started to feel hard with kids being there and wanting to be uh, closer to more family and like quality of life. And th that was part of it. Sure. But professional considerations were also a really big part of it. And I was doing a lot of very high profile work in New York. Mm -hmm. I was the associate director on a bunch of Broadway shows. I directed national tours. I worked with amazing artists. It was great. But I really had lost the sense that what I was doing was making the world better. And I do believe that art intrinsically makes the world better. Like I really do believe that. Sure. But it can be hard to convince yourself that that's true when you never interact with your audience. Yes. And in New York, especially working in the commercial theater, it's not like you have a subscription audience. It's not like you're there in the lobby greeting people. You know, mm -hmm. there's no sense of interaction. And I had really lost the sense that I was making the world better. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, I had two young kids at that point. Um, and so the balance was tough. And I wanted the world better for them. And so I just reached this point of thinking, I this doesn't work for me anymore. Sure. And so the thought when we moved back to Wisconsin was, I'll see if I can get a freelance directing career going here at a place where there's better balance and mm -hmm. better life for my family and, you know, more interaction with the audience. And if that doesn't work, maybe I'll do something entirely different and leave theater. That was absolutely kind of in the back of my mind. I was, you know, in full blown, I've got young kids at home mode. Yeah. Um, I was continuing to do some theater work in New York while I was there, but I thought, we'll, we'll just see what happens. Hmm. Um, luckily, when... Um, when I got here, I was able to get a few directing gigs in southern Wisconsin fairly quickly. Sure. Um, and so that had me feeling reasonably confident that I would be able to stay in theater and be here. Um, but then in the midst of that, we wound up starting forward theater. Yeah. And, um, you know, Madison Repertory Theater had been the only equity, you know, union company here in Madison. Right. And during that horrible, you know, financial meltdown, 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. The rep was in their 40th season. They closed mid-year. It was just horrible. Stunning. And um, and I was one of a, a group of artists that, that I was invited to a conversation about how we might preserve professional theater in okay. Madison. So I was one of a number of people at that table. Um, but then this gets back to my whole, I'm going to take a group of people and get us all together <laughs> to organize and take action. Um, I showed up at that conversation because I had about a week's advance notice we were going to be having it with literally a scroll of butcher paper on which I had sketched an outline of how we could build a theater from the ground up. Oh, and, my gosh. Um, and luckily, I was in a room with incredible and like-minded artists who all were like, great, that sounds good. Let's do that. <laughs> and then helped fine tune and, yeah. and adjust that vision. Um, but it really, I really do feel incredibly fortunate because if I had taken over an existing theater as artistic director, no. I would never have been able to mold it into this kind of company that I find so fulfilling. I mean, I really do believe that the work we're doing at Forward is making the world better, both through the art and through the ways that we engage with the community. And I get to see that because I have 3,000 subscribers that I get to see several times a year and talk with, and that we see, we bring in new new audiences to everything. We do partnerships with nonprofits on virtually every show that we do. We're doing plays about contemporary topics. So yeah, great. We're doing a play, Skeleton Crew, last fall that was about a plant closing in Detroit. 
fantastic. We partnered with the Wisconsin Historical Society. We did this photo um, gallery exhibit, Faces of Oscar Mayer, where we went right. out and we interviewed mm. people who'd been working for Oscar Mayer and lost their jobs when the plant closed down. When, and that had been their life. Mm. Um, and we um, got to meet and talk with those people and bring a bunch of them in to see the show and see how the story rippled out through our community. And that's, you know, we try to do something like that around nearly every production. Um, so I, so I get to see that, uh, up close and personal, but it's not, it's not just me that, that made that happen with forward. I mean, right. that's certainly a, it's something that I am drawn to and lean into, but it's also, uh, Celia Clare, it was her table we met around sure. that we, when we founded this company, she grew up on the Wisconsin idea and right. the sense of, um, of giving back and connection, you know, art of by and for a community. Right. Yes. Um, she was a huge leader in that. And then also we've been led by our audience because we would sort of experiment with, well, let's try having a talk back after every performance, mm -hmm. or let's try doing a fundraiser for this nonprofit that works on an issue presented in our play. And our audience just glommed onto that. Yes so enthusiastically we're like "Ooh, you like it we like that too right. great let's do more um so it's really been this kind of virtuous cycle where the more we do the more the audience embraces it the more we get to do it um and i don't think that would necessarily work everywhere well it also i think it also a combination of of your generosity and um courage the the theater company's generosity and courage because you could, um, it's very vulnerable to open yourselves up. You just, for example, a talk back. Sure. And you just did a performance. Yeah. And then literally the actors go back on stage and sit down. Yeah. Okay, how'd I do? You know, right. that's, <laughs> to me as a performer, that's, that's terrifying yeah. at times. I want to get out of the building. Yeah. And uh, the fact that you do that as a whole, as a company, but then um, directly as talkbacks, and that all of uh, you find actors who want to do that and, and everybody who works for you um, consistently, I, I think that's been a huge part of it. Um, but that's very, that's very admirable, and it's not easy. It's, you know, it's not easy, but it's... Um it's so rewarding. And again, it's partly, you know, the Madison audience is so smart and engaged and curious. That helps tremendously. But really, you know, we, we started doing talkbacks after every performance on our first production. And that was partly because our first production when we founded our company was Christopher Durang's Why Torture is Wrong and the right. People Who Love Them, which wasn't <laughs> an easy play. It was very funny, but it was... Um, it was a provocative choice out of the gate. Yes. And we thought people might want to talk about it. Sure. We also were a brand new company and we kind of wanted people, we wanted an opportunity to introduce ourselves, mm -hmm. right? And say this is, so people could ask about the company. They didn't have to ask questions about the show. Right. So we said, you know, we're going to talk back after a performance. We left it optional to all the actors um, and said, you can come out on stage for this or okay. you don't have to, uh, you know, I'll be there and, you know, it's up to you. But uh, quite a few cast members in that first production were people who'd helped found the company. Nice. Um, we don't have like a, a rep company of actors, you know, right. no one who's guaranteed roles. But that first show was partly picked to be able to use some of those folks. Um, and it wasn't a, a, an intention, like, we'll always do this. It mm -hmm. was, we'll do this for this first production. And we were 
pleasantly surprised by, you know, at that point, maybe like 20, 25, 30 people would stay for each mm-hmm. uh, performance's talk back. And that felt like a pretty good number, especially compared to what we'd seen happen at other sure. uh, theater companies. Ooh, my kitty's going to come and help Hi. us. Um, and so we did that and we thought we got some good feedback. People were like, oh, I really liked that. Couple of reasons I think they liked it. We kept them short. Our talkbacks oh, usually sure. are like maybe twenty minutes at Smart. most. Um, that helped a lot. So no one was saying I'm going to sit here captive for an additional <laughs> hour after the performance. Um, and we really were very wide open. It wasn't we're going to talk at you. It was like, what do you want to know? Do you yeah. want to talk about the play? Do you want to talk about our production choices? Do you want to ask the actors about their process? Do you want to talk about our theater company? How we pick plays? Whatever you want to do, we are here for you. Um, so the audience clearly valued it. We found it invaluable because it's we started learning more about our audience. Right. And that felt really instructive. So we said, you know what? Next season we're going to do that too. And what we saw is that the numbers kept growing. Now routinely half or more of our audience stays. We'll have 100, 150, sometimes 200 people stay for the talk back. Amazing. In a house of 300 seats. Amazing. Um, and it's... It is, I, I say it frequently, and I really mean it, it is the most valuable time that I spend as artistic director, those 20 minutes. You know, I'm at every performance, and it's partly so that I can lead those talkbacks. <laughs> and I hear from people. Yes. And that is what tells us what our community is looking for. And, you know, we see our, our theater company as a public service. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we get something out of it as artists. We get to create our art. But if we just wanted to get on stage and do the projects that we want to do as artists, mm-hmm. We could do a community theater, and that is not with a pejorative term, you know, feeling attached to community. We would just do it for ourselves, and it doesn't matter if anybody shows up and if anyone wants to buy a ticket. Right. a professional theater company, we're providing a service that people pay for. It doesn't mean it doesn't have artistic integrity, but it means that we are responsible to providing a good experience to our audience. And there's a lot of different kinds of theater. At, at, you know, it can be challenging, it can be, it can be provocative. We do really provocative plays at Forward, <laughs> but we're also committed. It's it, We have to respect the audience. These are people who are choosing to spend their evening in a theater with their neighbors and community members. And right. so we are responsible to them. And there's in no way do I feel that we have dumbed anything down at Forward by keeping that at the forefront of our um, thoughts and if anything I think we've been able to do much more challenging and provocative material than our predecessor company was able to do in this community and the dialogues that we have at talkbacks I think are part of that reason right I think that a lot of artists a lot of organizations performers are worried that if they uh, listen to feedback what they're going to hear is that they need to as you said dumb things down and that has not been our experience at all. In fact, we frequently hear from people, keep challenging me. Wow. And sometimes I'll do a play that will be a little extra out there. Yeah. And I'll hear from some people. You know, we did a play in our seventh season called Mr. Burns, A Post-Electric Play That's by right. Ann Washburn. It's brilliant. It's one of my favorite things we've ever done. But it is incredibly challenging. It is <laughs> it is out there in terms of its form and its structure. It's out there in terms of its content. I thought that what it had to say was deep and profound. And mm-hmm. I thought it was entertainingly done. But yeah, I had quite a few um, subscribers. Not a majority, but I mean, maybe 5% or something, which is still a lot of people. True. Um, who said, ooh, I didn't like that play. <laughs> I also had 500 young 
first time single ticket buyers come see that show. Oh, interesting. Who were drawn in. Now, I'm not going to do an entire season of Mr. Burns. Right. But every couple of years when I find one, I'm going to do it. And the, and the subscribers are okay with that. Like they, they get it. Not mm-hmm. everything is going to be my cup of tea, but everything will be well done and different things will appeal to different people. Yes. So uh, it seems like you have um, been patient. You, you folks knew when you started this that it would take a while. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- why are you so wise? Oh. <laughs> I don't know about How? being wise. I mean, part of it is that we're, we, we did, th- there was a group of us that yeah. did this together and we pooled our experience. Yeah. Um, and we came from a lot of different perspectives you know um it's it's not just me i mean i had my experience in new york Mm -hmm. as well as having grown up here my knowledge of madison and 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 what this community is like um but i'd worked on a lot of different kinds of theater with a lot of different kinds of artists but we also had um in that group that founded the theater we had designers we had actors we had playwrights we had technicians so there were a lot of different people with a lot of experience who got to have a voice in yeah. how we set this up. Sure. Um, and then we built a board of directors, and they've been wonderful, and they've had a voice. And so it was never um, one person being wise. It's collective wisdom from letting a lot of people have a voice. And that is something we're really proud of at Forward. Our, our operating structure, to our knowledge, is completely unique. Um, it's the way we built the company. It, it's on that scroll from our first meeting. Wow. And it has, I think it is the secret sauce to our success. And that is that when we sat around the table and said, hey, let's start a company, we were thinking not just about Madison Rep having closed. We were thinking about um, companies that we collectively had seen go under yes. uh, locally and across the country. And we and we all thought, like, what what causes companies to fold? And it really can't seem to come down to two fundamental issues, which are interrelated. One is when communication breaks down between yes. <laughs> between boards, between staffs, between artists, between audience. Right. You know, that is a huge problem. And the other is when the art you're creating and the fiscal realities of creating it get out of balance. Yes. If you focus solely on the art, and don't focus on the fact that you need to raise money and sell tickets to support the art. You, you just, you're going to have a very short lifespan as a company. Right. If you focus solely on what you think is the financially safe thing to do and ignore the artistic impulses uh, to keep things exciting, the audience is going to very qu- quickly bore and, and move on. And so you need that sense of balance. And so when we founded the company, we thought, how can we... How can we maintain balance? How can we make sure that we consider fiscal and artistic um, priorities in every decision that we make? How can we make sure that everybody knows what those considerations are yeah. who's making decisions so that artists aren't making those decisions without considering fiscal responsibility so that boards aren't making fiscal decisions without considering artistic needs and desires? How do you keep that seesaw in balance. And, and our solution was our company's not a seesaw. We're a three-legged stool. Exactly. And so we built into our bylaws that we not only have a staff and a board of directors, we also have what we call our advisory company. Now, a lot of companies have an art 
an advisory board. Ours has rights and responsibilities built into our bylaws. That's the difference. And that's that's the difference. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we always joke it's like the federal government, but functional in that <laughs> sense of um, the three branches of government and that checks and balances. And we built that. We built that into the, um, the foundation of the company. So I have advice and input from a lot of different artists with different aesthetics and different areas of expertise. Mm-hmm. When I'm choosing my season, when I'm hiring artists, I have a lot of input from a lot of people with differing perspectives than mine. Yeah, okay. And, and I, I need, the advisory company has to approve the season that I select by, not unanimously, but by a majority vote. So if I were to suddenly go off on a, you know, aesthetic tangent and create this sort of, you know, I'm gonna do an entire season of Beckett because that's what I wanna work on. They could say, um, no, we don't think that serves the breadth of our audience very well. And that's built into our bylaws. At the same time, the board cannot, the board doesn't get to approve the season. They approve the budget. But I don't have board members weighing in on, do you do this play or that play? I have the advisory company who are artists who read plays. Big deal. Making those decisions. And the board can't um, make executive level staffing changes without talking with the artists first and hearing what those implications might be. Yeah, it's a big problem with symphony orchestras. Yeah. Um, and what's really been fun is, you know, we actually, we have, we have a buddy system. Every year we assign one advisory company member to a board member and they are buddies for the year and they get coffee or lunch or a drink and they get to know each other. And suddenly my artists know more about what it actually takes to run a company than any artists I've ever worked with. Wow. And that and and they help. They help raise money. They help with advocacy. They help with outreach events because they have this vested interest in the success of the company. My board understands better what it takes to actually put the art on huh. than any board I've ever worked with. And there's such respect huh. both ways. So you don't have, you know, I've been I've been a guest director at companies where the board is, you know, the board's bitching about the artists. Oh, they yep. don't know what, how hard it is to raise money. Yep. And the artists aren't bitching about the board. Why don't they just go, you know, raise some money so we can do whatever we want? Yep. We don't have that at all at Forward. And that is such a gift to me. It's incredible. Director. Now, you're working with a, a bunch of artists and artists, uh, many of us, are strong-willed. We have strong opinions. <laughs> And often people who are on boards of directors are people who are uh, perhaps type A's or very successful. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you manage all of these people who have probably great ideas and strong opinions? What's great is because we are structured in a way that really values everybody's input, yeah. I think that actually helps, and I'm a type A myself, helps everybody relax a little uh, bit because everyone gets their say. Okay. And then a decision gets made. So nobody feels like they're fighting to be heard. And sometimes right. the decision will be what they were advocating for. And sometimes it'll be something they weren't advocating for. But they know that their voice is part of the decision-making process. Right. So every, I mean, it really is so collaborative. So our, our advisory company meets monthly just like our board of directors does. Good. We discuss a play every month that's been assigned to the group. Everybody reads it. And then we we talk about it and you know is this a good play is this do we think it's not a good play is it a good play for our company is it a good play for our community and our audience what you know what what are the pitfalls of this what are the strengths of this 
And those get incredibly passionate and they, there can be incredibly varied yeah. opinions about plays. But we've done plays that some people around our table hated. Wow. But other people loved. And what happens is when I present a slate, people aren't voting on one play. They're voting on the slate, on the okay. season. So they might say, you know what, I really hated that play, but I love those other ones. And you know what? I might represent a segment of our audience. And as long as there's something for them to love, then this is a, a well-balanced season, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and similarly with the board, they feel like they're a part of these discussions. Um, you know, we have advisory company members that we sign up so that there's always an advisory company member or two at each board meeting. There's always a board member or two at each advisory company meeting. So again, you get to see the seriousness with which, with which everyone approaches their jobs. Right. So there's so much respect baked into that. Um, and fun too. You know, we, we cook a lot. We have a lot of shared meals. We have, um, a, a fun holiday party, a fun summer picnic where everyone brings their families. Like there's, such opportunity to get to know each other as, as human beings wow. that there just seems to be a lot of affection and respect going in all directions. And that, that helps us get through hard decisions right. without breaking us. I read the um, mission statement yeah. that you have. Yeah. And it looks so wonderful. And It's um, very simple and straightforward. We fought really hard for that. Holy cow. It actually makes sense, unlike mm -hmm. some other mission statements. And all of your um, rights, your list of mm -hmm. rights, um, it also looks like it would be it would be amazingly wonderful to be to participate in a show. Mm -hmm. um, and you've spoken before about the fact that you are providing employment and jobs to mm -hmm. people very seriously. It's a huge part of our mission. Yeah. And that's partly because we founded the company in the thick of a major recession. Mm -hmm. um, when the rep closed, it was one of three equity companies in Southern Wisconsin that closed in a six month period. Oh. Newcourt and Beloit and Milwaukee Shakespeare closed in that same six month period. And there was this real sense you know, there is a professional theater ecosystem in Wisconsin. It's not huge, but it's mighty. And there was the sense that people were going to have to leave the state or leave the profession oh because there wasn't enough paid work. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, it's a, for most theater artists in Wisconsin, it's a freelance career. You, mm -hmm. you, you, know, you do a show at APT. You do a show at Milwaukee Rep. You do a show in Door County. You do a show at Madison Rep. You know, you build a season, right? Right. Um, and you, and, but you can stay relatively close to home. You can have a home base. And Madison always played an important role in that ecosystem. Madison Rep did. Yeah. Um, and when they left, when they closed, there was this real sense of, is there still a freelance career to be built that can be focused on Wisconsin where we can still create a art that's of, by, and for our community? Wow. And so that was a really big um, foundational principle. You know, our, so our mission is... Um, that we are creating a home base for Wisconsin theater professionals and audiences that expands the cultural and economic life of the greater Madison area. That's our mission. <laughs> we prioritize hiring Wisconsin-based theater artists. Mm -hmm. Over 95% of the 100 plus artists that we hire every season live in Wisconsin. And the, and the handful that don't are people who do most of their work here, but they have an apartment in Chicago because there's more work there. Sure. Right? Um, 
or they went to graduate school here and they have a sense of this community, mm -hmm. but now they live, you know, somewhere just out of state. I mean, mm -hmm. that, but we we take really seriously our role, not just in hiring locally, but in paying a living wage, in trying to push push forward pay rates amongst our peer organizations, um, and make it sustainable for people to choose to live in our state and still be part of the professional theater community. If you had a, a do-over, although I I don't know that you'd want to do any of this hard work again, <laughs> um, would you do anything different? It's a great question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've learned a lot. Yeah. All of us have learned a lot. And, and some of those lessons were painful um, on a sort of personal, emotional level. Okay. Um, but I, but we needed to go through them. Yeah. We needed to learn. It made us stronger as a company, healthier as a company. I can't think of something because even the things that were hard helped us. Mm in the long run. Mm -hmm. So no, I can't think of any, I can't think of any, you know, sort of fundamental thing. Um, you know, growing pains are good. Yeah. Um, you know, we feel really, you know, we're in our 10th season now and we, um, we've just expanded. We now do a four show main stage season <laughs> instead of three. Um, we do a lot of, uh, support to develop new work from new writers. Um, we do a lot out in the community. Our budget has grown, you know, our first, um, our opening bank balance was $56 <laughs> because when we were at that first meeting, we were like, well, if we're starting a company, we need to apply for our 501c3 status to do that. We're going to need a post office box. So we all kicked in like five or 10 bucks <laughs> and then we opened the bank with $56. The budget for our first season was a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Um, and, and we went from zero to a hundred thousand dollars, you know, that first year. Cause we're like, we have to, we can't just do some readings. Right. If we want people to support us, we need to show them what we actually intend to do. Yes. So we did a full-scale professional production as well as as well as a couple of readings. That's right. That first year to kind of say, here we are. Um, our budget this year for season 10 was $1.2 million. Um, Incredible. And one of the things we're proudest of is that we've been in the black every single season. Um, so we've been... And that, you know, the fact that we took till season 10 to expand to four shows a year... Sure is you know because our second season was three shows and we seasons two through nine were three shows yeah and we knew all along we wanted to go to go to four but we waited until we felt that we had all of the financial support infrastructure mm -hmm. and all of the staffing infrastructure in place for that to be long-term sustainable right um so we were i would say we're super super conservative in our budgeting and our spending and then we're super bold in our artistic programming and it wouldn't seem that those things balance if you just think of it on the surface but actually it's exactly what we've done yep and it's worked patience and trust and process is required for yeah. success yeah but it's hard to to have those things right right um the artists, the artistic community has embraced. I mean, we had so many artists that worked with us that first year and we paid everybody. We're like, we are a professional company from the get-go. We are going to be working with union artists. We are going to be paying everybody. But we weren't paying them what they were getting paid at the 40-year-old companies sure. <laughs> that first year. 
And we just said, look, we are going to pay you and we are going to promise you, you're all going to, I mean, like all of our actors get paid the same every season. All of our designers get paid the same every season. It's not like wow. negotiating, oh, they get more than me. You know, it's, we're, it's more egalitarian that way. But what we say is we promise you next year, the pay rates are going to be higher. And the year after that, they're going to be higher. And when you come back to work with us, you're going to make more money than you did this time because you're helping build something. And people have come back again and again, and they feel, you know, it's our mission statement. We're a home base. Yeah. So that's been great. And the fact that I think that's part of why these actors choose to come out for these talkbacks every sure. night. Mm -hmm. That and that they get that same reminder I get that what we do impacts our community in a positive way mm -hmm. you know when you talk with the audience after a performance and you see how your work moved them or inspired them or excited them or challenged them you get to go back to your next gig where maybe you never talk to the audience having been reminded that what we do actually it matters it has an impact and mm. so um wow we take a lot of pride in that so Anybody who is a type B color outside the lines person needs mm -hmm. to find somebody like you <laughs> to pair up with. Right. We go well together. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so what what do you personally do in one day if you're you're concerned with all of these things? <laughs> um I would have sort of two typical kinds of days because okay. it depends we you know in our four show season i direct two of those plays yeah so i have days when i'm in rehearsal and then i have mm -hmm. other days um when i'm in rehearsal you know i'll have an eight-hour rehearsal day and before rehearsal and during lunch break and after rehearsal i'm putting my artistic director back hat uh, hat back on mm -hmm. and um you know responding to emails and you know calling with talking with the rest of the staff and sort of just keeping those balls in the air during those three and a half weeks that I'm really kind of not very available. And that's, you know, six days a week and wow. um, craziness, but also my happy place. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I'm not in rehearsal and that's, you know, really, I've got the, you know, the seven, seven weeks of a year that I'm the person in rehearsal. Um, other than that, uh, it's a mix. It's a lot of meetings. Um, and those could be meetings with artists we might work with. They could be meetings with sponsor companies that might give us money. It could be meetings with a donor. It could be meetings with Overture Center to talk about how things are going in the facility that we rent. It could be um, meetings with uh, someone at a nonprofit that we might want to partner with. It could be meetings with um, a theater student who's reached out and said, you know, can I talk with you about making a career yeah um so there's a lot of that yeah um there's a lot of time spent talking and brainstorming with staff about ooh, what's a cool thing we could do sure you know um or here's a problem we have a fundraiser coming up and ticket sales are going slow for that how can we um move that needle forward um and then you know some days i'll 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 close we have a a very open plan office so that mm -hmm. we can all just shout ideas back and forth and it's very sociable and and fun and collaborative but then we also have a little room that we call the fortress of solitude <laughs> it's a tiny little room with a door so that we can go in there and sit if we need a quiet phone call or whatever and you know at least once a week i try to you know go sit in there and read a play <laughs> nice <laughs> um or i might be, i might be casting you know having auditions wow. or uh, meeting with a designer for an upcoming production yeah so my days are not the same that they're, they are great. extremely varied. 
And that is great. And I, and I, I like that. So what do you say to that theater student who, who calls you? What, what advice do you give somebody who uh, says, I want to be a director? And they're in yeah. high school. And they're in high school. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it's, what I tell them is that it's a really hard thing to give advice on because there is not a path. Now we're going sure. back to the beginning of the conversation. There's not a do this and then do that and then do that and then you're a director. Um, usually what I will encourage them to do if they're a high school student, I will say, make sure you go to a school that does a lot of theater. Yes. You know, regardless of what the, the your major is and what the department is, um, do a lot of theater. And if you can play a lot of different roles, and I don't mean acting roles, like be a stage manager, be a director, be a writer, be a performer, design something if you have the opportunity and to learn how to do that. Um, because the more theater you can participate in, the more you'll learn. Um that's usually the main piece of advice that I give them at that point. Sure. Uh, if they're in college and they're looking at career, yeah. Um, I I tend to. I I I mean, all I can really advise someone on is the path that I took. Sure. And I learned a tremendous amount from being an assistant director. Um, being in the room and watching somebody work, and if you're with someone whose directing style you really like. You learn a tremendous amount. If you're in a room with someone who's directing style you really don't like, you learn a tremendous right. amount. Um, and it is a great way to learn how to run a room. It's a great way to learn how to solve problems. Mm -hmm. You meet a lot of people who are working at a level above where you are in your career. Yes. And you start building relationships. Um, and you get to watch great artists work. That, that's what I did. And so it's a path that I can recommend if people have the opportunity to do that, um, it, which doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of other good paths. It's just it's the only one that I have personal experience with, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of directing programs uh, for MFAs. They're extremely small, so they're very hard to get into. But I know a lot of great directors who've come out of those different programs but it's not the only path. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Still doing the, doing, do your craft, seek out people who do it, be around it, watch it done. And find kind. a way to sustain that life while you're in your learning stage. Yes. I mean, we're always as artists in our learning stage, but especially when you're in your sort of new to the field. Sure. What I think of more as the apprenticeship phase of your career. Yeah. You need a job that pays the bills yeah. that allows you to take those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the hardest stretches to go through. Yes. And so that's, that is a piece of advice I always give. It's like whether it's temping or finding some sort of job that value that, that takes advantage of other skills that you have mm -hmm. so that you can get paid you can pay your bills but that does allow you the flexibility when an opportunity to apprentice comes along because some of those pay and some of them don't which is another thing that our field's really trying to um, address because it is that holds us back as a field because right. it, it limits people who can take those learning opportunities to people who've got the financial means to do so right um that's that's an area that I'm looking to um, 
I'm trying to at forward specifically, but more statewide come up with, are there some models that we can get grant funding for that allow us to provide some, you know, directing apprenticeships that pay at a living wage so that someone can afford to do it and get that learning experience. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a jigsaw puzzle you have to put together. <laughs> or a patchwork quilt, I guess, is a better analogy. That's a great analogy. Um, so I have a couple final questions. Sure. One question is, what are some misconceptions people have about your life as a... They find out you're a theater director. Yeah. And so then what, what do some people think that is false about you or your life? Hmm... Um, I think most people would not presume that I spend as much time fundraising <laughs> as I do and and working on the running of a business. Yes. Um, people like, there's a, a huge misconception in the business world that nonprofits aren't businesses. They're businesses. And yes. they run really just like businesses, except that our goal, our goal is to make money. Our goal is not to not make a profit. <laughs> our goal is to make a profit and then put that profit back into serving our mission. Right. And so a huge amount of my time is spent running a bit. I run a business that has a budget of $1.2 million a year. It's a big business. Yes. And there's a lot of um, uh, responsibilities and work that comes along with it. I've surprised myself mm. at how much I enjoy a lot of that work. Sure. Um, you know, when I believe in what I do, it's not as hard to ask people for money <laughs> as you might think or to um, or to build a budget because I'm building the budget so that I can then hire a hundred artists. That's Amazing. pretty awesome. Um, so I think people wouldn't guess that I spend as much of my time as I do doing that. Um, and there, you know, there might also be a misconception that uh, it's just a question of, oh, who are those artists that I hire? It's just all the people I know. I just, you know, go around. Who, who are the actors that I like? I just give them jobs. Who are the designers I like? I just give them jobs. Obviously, that is part of the process. You know, you get to know an actor's work and you like them and you want them to come and work with you. That is part of it. You work with a designer and you're like, oh, you're really good at this. I'm going to hire you for another show that is absolutely part of how this works it, it kind of has to be but a huge amount of my time is spent um going and seeking out new people hmm. um bringing in new artists you know going going to open auditions in milwaukee and and you know going to see shows in tiny little spaces so that i can get to know a director's work or a designer's work hmm. um reaching out and saying hey i've got this role to fill i really you know i want to bring in someone new for this do you know anybody um how can i um continually expand the pool wow. of artists that work at forward um those might be con misconceptions people have neat hmm. um <clears throat> the last thing i i would i mean i i would like you to say anything you want to say <laughs> <laughs> i'm really upset at all <laughs> um <laughs> the last thing that i have to ask you is if you could tell us at least three things that are inspiring you now and they can be any kind any anything in the world or any kind of art mm -hmm. it can be uh, a play it can be a general thing oh my gosh 
three things that are inspiring me now. Um, okay, if I overthink this, I'll, I'll be here yep. all day. So I'm just going to think of what, what springs into my head initially. Um, one, two, do I have three? Um, yes. Okay. So I'm just, these are the first three things okay. that have come into my head. And I, I'm sure that tonight I would have 30 sure. ones that I would supplant them with. Um <laughs> One thing that's inspiring me now is um, watching. Um, I had uh, someone who's a member of our advisory company who, um, over the course of a couple of years, decided that he was interested in being a director, had acted in some shows with us, came and said, can I be your assistant on a show? Did it, did a great job, and then said, can I assist you on another show? I was like, really? You want to assist me on another show? You know? And he's like, no, no, I feel like I'm still learning. Did that was incredibly helpful to me. Provide, mm. Was really learning a lot, was was able to help me a lot. I wound up hiring that person to be my associate director for two seasons because it helped me do my job better. Wow. Because he was really clearly talented enough to be a professional director, was um, responsible enough to be able to help me because it's hard when I'm directing and I'm also still the artistic director. And sometimes I need to like juggle those things yeah. and it can get overwhelming and he was very quick to step up and be like here's this thing i can do to help with that juggling act watching that person grow and grow and grow in their directing insight mm -hmm. over those couple of years um, i gave him an opportunity to direct a monologue for a monologue festival he did a great job gave him an opportunity to direct a reading of a new play for our um, wisconsin rights new play series he did a great job. He went and self-produced a show at the Bartell Community Theater. I went and saw it. I was like, this is really good. So he directed his first main stage show for Forward this past fall. Oh. It was, it just so inspired me yeah. to watch this person become a professional director. Yeah. And to do so well. And now I'm looking and he's getting gigs now with other companies and, and working on building the career. And it's in that really hard stage where... <sighs> You know, he's been working with Forward and building up a career, yeah. and in a um, or building up a, a skill set, um, and now he's going out and pursuing work elsewhere. And it's, um, I remember being at that stage, <laughs> and it's really hard, but it's it's inspiring me and making me feel. It's like it's the first person that I've really mentored through this process, the way some of my mentors yes. mentored me, and it. Anyway, that that inspires me in a lot of ways. I'm going to ignore the phone that's ringing in the background. <laughs> um, the second thing that uh, is inspiring me is I've just been watching some really fabulous um, uh, television on Netflix recently that has just been a lot of different forms. And I have been enjoying that tremendously. Um, there's some really, really, really good art and storytelling happening uh on Netflix and on the other streaming platforms right now. Um, and I feel like that's been really uh, rejuvenating. Yes. And fun just as, just to be a um, a patron of storytelling. Right. In a way that I sometimes don't get when I go to see a show. Because yep. when I go to see a show, my director hat is 100% on. Sure. Um, doesn't mean I can't enjoy it. But like, well, but I'm, I'm seeing everything. I'm seeing yeah. the, the directorial decisions. I'm seeing the design decisions. I'm seeing the acting decisions. I'm seeing the playwriting decisions mm -hmm. while I watch it. When I watch TV, I can still sometimes just enjoy the story. Okay. And that's really fun. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, the third thing that this is literally the third thing that popped into my head that's inspiring me right now is our development director, Julia Nicholas at Forward. 
um, because she's been with us since our second season and growing into this um, role. And, you know, just as I learned how to be an artistic director on the job at Forward, mm -hmm. she's learned how to be a development director on the job at Forward. And seeing her confidence mm. and her success at growing this company and the passion that she has for the work that we do, it, it just really inspires me. And we've, you know, we've thrown a lot of challenges her way. It's like, yeah. oh, we're going to grow our season. So we're going to need to raise another $100,000 a year. Oh, you know, we're on the cusp of probably doing an endowment campaign. That's going to be a huge new experience for all of us. And I just, I, I get inspired watching her, her do her work to serve this company because she's not coming at it as an artist who mm. has this, I need to create, I need to be in theater. I need to be an actor. Sure. I need to, she loves the work that we do and goes out every day to help us raise the funds to do it. Mm -hmm. And with such grace and passion and um, dedication, it just, yeah, she inspires me. That's marvelous. Yeah. Of course it's people for you. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Oh, this is fun. What a pleasure. Yeah. You have been listening to the Art Lives podcast. Much gratitude to Jennifer Upoff Gray for speaking with me. I posted links to Forward Theater on the Art Lives page of my website, Elizabeth dailymater.com. Please give us a rating and comments on Apple Podcasts. More ratings allow more people to hear us. Of course, we are available on the website, on Apple and Stitcher. Art Live's theme and incidental music is composed by Nicholas Myers, and our logo is created by Eduardo Moreno. Big thanks to both of them and to my audio advisor, Bill Salick. Finally, thank you so much for listening to Art Lives. <laughs> <laughs>